Thank you for joining me once again here on the Frontlines of Freedom podcast brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. My name is Ivan Mawadire, and I am a democracy activist from Zimbabwe, where I started a citizens' movement in 2016, and we challenged the regime concerning corruption, injustice, and poverty. I spent many months in prison. I was tortured and beaten until I escaped and now live in exile. On this podcast, we talk to some of the most amazing people in our world who have lived through some horrific experiences. Many of them, at the cost of their own lives, have stood up to injustices to try and help people live a life of freedom. And today, I am with yet another one of these amazing people. When I heard the story of this young man, I was blown away. But when I met him, I was even more impressed by how he carries himself and how he has decided to use his story and his experiences to help people around the world. Joseph Kim is from North Korea. And I know you may have heard many things about North Korea, but what he will tell us is a very interesting experience. Through a very treacherous journey and at a very young age, he experienced some harsh things. He managed to escape into China and eventually to the United States. And we want to hear his story. So, Joseph, thank you so much for joining me here today on the front lines of freedom. Ivan, thanks for having me. It's my honor and it's wonderful to reconnect with you. So beautiful. We met a couple of weeks ago at the Struggle for Freedom conference that was being hosted by the Bush Center and the President George W. Bush Institute. And that is where you are situated. I'm curious to know, Joseph, how you ended up there. Take us back to where your life begins and the experiences surrounding your birth and what the conditions were when you were born. So thank you for that warm introduction. As you said, I was born and raised in North Korea until I was 16. Uh, North Korea is uh, one of the most repressive and isolated regime that I can think of. Uh, and I was born in 1990 and about four years later, there was a big famine. So it was not the most generous environment to be a children at the time. I mean, when you talk about a famine, could you tell us what this famine was like? Was it just that you couldn't, you couldn't buy food or was it food hard to come by? I mean, what was that like? So again, I was so young that uh, at the time I didn't understand what famine is about, what cause. And these are things that I learned after I came to the United States, uh, studying mm. history and uh, complexity of uh, politics, but also North Korean regimes, uh, connections to Soviet Union or Russia now. So the famine started early 1990s and it took close to 3 million people died from uh, hunger in between less than six years. My gosh. And uh, it's a country of roughly 25 million people in a population of 25 million people. And my father also died of starvation when I was 12 years old. What caused famine? Experts say that the famine was caused by a drought. In 1994, there was uh, uh, no rain for farmers to grow their product. 
So that's one natural disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, as you probably remember, uh, not to Soviet Union kind of collapsed in terms of its ability to support its neighboring countries. So mm-hmm. North Korea used to get a lot of food assistance from Soviet Union and that North Korea could no longer getting a support that they uh, needed. So combination of a natural disaster and the shortage of a support that they used to get from uh, Soviet Union and bad political management, meaning in 1994, the founder of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, died to build his resting place. Now, some people say it cost uh, millions of U.S. dollars. Mm. Uh, with that, should the regime decide to use that uh, resource to help us, its citizens, they could have saved a lot of lives, but they decide not to. And to make it even worse, international community offered food aid, recognizing that they had a big drought. But North Korean regime, at least in the first stage, denied that there was a food shortage mm-hmm. and denied the support because I think they, the regime at this time receiving aid from international community considered as a, a, a embarrassing. You know, Joseph, just listening to you talk about watching your father die and I just, I don't know how you process that as a child. And I know that it was you and your sister, your older sister, who were children at the time. What did that mean for you in terms of survival? How did you then make a plan to survive? Especially since the regime had refused to receive international assistance and had instead chosen to build a grave for for the leader. How did you survive? So luckily, I became homeless when I was 12 years old. And I will explain to you why I say I was lucky. In terms of processing a loss, such close figure as father, I'm still not sure if I can say that I completely processed that entire experience. And I don't think there is a proper way to process. Mm. So I can't really answer to your question, how did I process the loss of my father from starvation? Yeah. In the same year, my sister, older sister, was sold to a man in China, uh, hoping that the small money that she was compensated would be enough to save me and my mom and did not work. And my mom was eventually sent to a prison in North Korea because she was trying to escape North Korea, China. And leaving North Korean uh, the regime without government permission is uh, considered as uh, one of the high treasons. So I became homeless. Wait a second. You're saying that leaving North Korea without permission, which I believe you don't just get, but if you attempt to leave, that is a crime? But considered as a treason. So oh my God. maybe I should have explained, even inside North Korea, if I wanted to travel and visit my grandmother from town A to town B. I also need travel permission from the local authority. So if there is no freedom of movement within the regime, leaving the regime to another country is almost unthought of, unthinkable. Mm, mm. Yeah. 
So at 12 years old, you become an orphan because your mother has been shipped off to a prison and your sister has taken off to China to try and find work. And you're an orphan now at 12 years old. Tell me about what happens then at, at that point with your life. Um, I basically had to do whatever it takes to survive. And that means at a young age, you have to learn to break your pride and go out on the street and ask leftover food from the strangers or stealing food from merchants. Or I, and I also worked in a coal mines and compensation was that I get a free lunch. So it was not easy to put it mildly. But one of the reasons why I said that I was one of the lucky person to become homeless at the age of 12 was because I realized when I got out on the street, there were children uh, who had been surviving since they were age five or six. So I can only imagine how mm. much more difficult it was for them. You worked in coal mines and you were 12. What was that like when you talk about working in a coal mine? Can you paint us a picture of what a day looked like in a coal mine? How deep was it? What was the working conditions? that you'd worked under? It's going 33 meters underground. And uh, I think human nature is composition of good and bad, to Mm -hmm. put it simply. Right. And I say that because the grown-ups who are working in coal mines, they themselves were also struggling against poverty. And it was not easy life for them either. But I think they had a soft heart for me because they themselves also look at me and I'm, I was obviously young and a boy mm-hmm. who was supposed mm-hmm. to be in school. In reality, I wasn't with them. So I think they tried to find really easy job for me to do it in within the core mining. So for example, like they uh, gave me relatively easy task, right. knowing that I was only a child and mm-hmm. I appreciate it a lot. But work was, even today, I think that was the most challenging, most exhausting work that I've ever done. Wow. Wow. Joseph, you then made a decision that you would leave North Korea. Your sister who had left, you were not sure where she had gone. You were not sure whether she was okay. You hadn't heard from her. And you make the decision to then leave North Korea and to escape into China. Tell me about that decision. How old were you when you made that decision? And just walk us through how you eventually escaped. So by then I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And so by then I had survived on the street about three years. And I knew that begging, stealing, working in coal mine was not a sustainable way to continue living. And I had witnessed many children who didn't make it on the street. Right. They also faced hunger and passed away. And so I knew I could also die from hunger like my father or many other homeless children. So for me, I had two choices. One, I continued to try, knowing that my fate would not be much different from others who didn't make it and stay in North Korea. Or... I take a risk and try to escape from North Korea to China. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, 
escaping is highly risky and dangerous because North Korean regime made clear instruction in terms of the border guards have the authority to shoot and kill anyone who tried to cross oh my the God. border between North Korea and China. And uh, I basically had to take a chance. Uh, and luckily, I was in a border town where I knew where the national border was at least. Right. And there is a river called Tumen River serves as a border between North Korea and China. Uh-huh. And I knew I was taking high risk anyway, but I still thought about what could I do differently from mm-hmm. everyone else. And uh, I remember growing up, I heard many stories who were trying to escape and couldn't make it. Mm. One common findings among those stories was that everyone tried during the nighttime for obvious reasons. Right. And uh, I said, maybe I will do something different. I will try to cross during the day, hoping that uh, these uh, soldiers would have become complacent by then because even trying to escape at night it's nearly impossible. Why would anyone try it during the during the day, right? Day. So I made that choice, and luckily there was no soldiers when I was running across the border. So I think, if anything, I don't want our audience to walk away and say Joseph is genius because that that's not. I think what, if anything, the lesson that I would like to take from that experience is that. As we get older, we become wiser, but we also lose something. And that is sometimes brave and courageous and take less risk, Mm. less chances. Because as we get older, we think about things in terms of probability. Right. Less, not possibility. And so that's something that I try to remind myself. It's great to be cautious and great to make as best decision as you can, but sometimes life, I think in life, we have to take chances and I simply just took the chance and I'm grateful that that chance uh, that that I made it. You know, Joseph, I, I cannot tell you how much I am struck by your humility, your sense of just thankfulness and gratefulness for the life that you have lived, as hard as it may have been, you have this amazing ability to call yourself lucky in situations that many of us think are just horrendous and completely unlucky. And I think that 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 is a special quality that most people that live with so much freedom and so much at their disposal, you know, sometimes miss. You find yourself in China, you finally get to China And I don't know, where did you start? How did you find your way, you know, when you got to China? And again, you know, we think of China as a place that is dangerous for democracy and freedom. And yet for you and many North Koreans, it was a place of opportunity. How was that or how is that? It's interesting because, uh, yeah, ironically, China is better off than North Korea. So it was a land of opportunity with a highly restricted sense. So once I made it to China, that's when I became really perplexed about the world and humanity. Because in North Korea, when I was on the street, 
asking for leftover food. Most often people say, sorry, kid, I don't, I don't have food, enough food to share. I understood because sharing food with me also means their children has to eat less. Right. Makes sense. In China, I knew that at least most Chinese citizens uh, have uh, enough food to share with our strangers and the ones we needed. So going to China, I never thought about worrying not getting enough food from China. I said they have enough food. Why wouldn't they not share right. leftover rice with me? It was completely opposite of what I had expected. Really? Yes. And later I learned why, but at the time I didn't know, which was the Chinese government incentivize for Chinese citizens not to share any food with North Korean refugees or North Korean defectors. Right. Because Chinese government has a political connections with North Korean regime and right. Chinese government wants to make sure that they don't welcome North Koreans in China. Meaning, if you were a Chinese citizen and you shared a leftover food with me, you would have to pay fine if you got caught from Chinese authority. Mm. Vice versa, if a Chinese citizen report a suspected North Korean defector, then there is some sort of a, a rewards. So I, systematically, Chinese citizens were not able to be generous as much as they could. I see. But at the same time, I also don't want to generalize all Chinese citizens in one category because even within those harsh conditions, there were people who went out of their way, took the risk to share food with me and uh, eventually helped me to escape North Korea. So I wanted to recognize that reality right, that right. Chinese citizens are not as free as they could to help people with North Korean defectors, but mm. there are also a number of great people who took the risk. I see. You know, it's amazing because as you and I sit here having this conversation, there are protests happening in China right now where the general people are, are protesting, wanting freedom. They're wanting a better way to be governed. And I know from hearing what you're saying, I can tell that the Chinese government has always and continues to be repressive and oppressive. And yet there are many of that nation's citizens who believe in freedom, who believe in hope. And I'm glad that you have testified about some of those people because I think some of those people are the ones who are standing up today and defying the CCP regime. I want to quickly jump through how you then found safety in China and then how you eventually left China and got here to the U.S. You know, I know that at some point you found a place that was almost an underground setup that then looked after you. Tell us a little bit about that. Made it to China and I slept in the mountains or abandoned houses. And then I went to villages door to door asking for leftover food. And I lived like that for uh, several weeks. Mm. Later, someone told me about uh, Christians or church. I did not know about them, but event basically went to church 
And a member of church just said, I will do my best to help you. And this person eventually helped me to connect it to a nonprofit organization based in the United States who helps with uh, rescuing North Korean rep defectors from China to say right. either South Korea mm-hmm. or to the United States. So with the connection through a Christian church that I was able to connect with American NGO who brought me to the United States. You know, again, Joseph, we just hearing you talk about certain things, it's easy to say them in one sentence. But when you consider what living in the mountains means, that's days upon days. I mean, you have no concept of place of shelter. You're just, you're just living wherever you are. Your sister at this point, when you're in China, I'm sure you're thinking she's somewhere here, but just didn't know where to start. What has been your thought about the whereabouts of your sister, even at the time when you were moving into China? I'm sure you were thinking about about finding. So I studied in total about roughly three years uh, in elementary school. So I had very little education. Mm-hmm. I say that because I was so young and naive that I didn't think about how to find my sister in China. My thought was once I make it to China, of course I would find my sister. That was the thinking. Mm-hmm. But once I made it to China, I realized China was too big. So big, much bigger than I had expected. And without address, without phone number, it was very difficult. I mean, I didn't know how to begin. It's interesting because uh, you asked me about my sister. Uh, even today, uh, sometimes I think about, you know, I, luckily I'm in a safe place, but I don't know if my sister is even alive, not alone safe. I'm thinking about you then making the journey to the United States and then, you know, being part of uh, a family that took you in. I'm wondering what your thought at that point was. I mean, this is a a different world altogether, you know. Uh, You're having to learn a new language and so many things. Uh, What were your initial thoughts as you arrived and you became part of this new family? Completely overwhelmed because if you don't know Understanding the concept of freedom and exercising in that uh, is different thing. If I wasn't trained to exercise the opportunities that I had given in the United States, it was overwhelming. To put it simply, when I came to the United States, everyone told me you have the ability to do anything and everything, but no one told me what anything and everything inherits. Oh, and I had to define what they are and find a way to make that happen. To put conceptual thought aside, I came to the United States, obviously didn't speak the language, uh, didn't speak any English, but they put me in high school, freshman year in high school. Mm-hmm. And of course, I didn't understand what was happening in, in any of classes. My math teacher got clever. He was probably thinking, I know she doesn't speak English, but she's Asian, so he must to speak numbers. So he asked me to solve a basic algebraic uh, equation I'd never seen before in my life. So I was way behind in terms of education, but 
one thing that helped me to overcome those challenges was remembering the love that I received from my biological father, but also a foster father who helped me to realize what I should be doing in the mm-hmm. country. That is, it's a little bit long story, so I'm going to try to summarize it. Basically, when I was probably nine or 10 years old, my sister and my father left home very early in the morning to collect wood from the mountains. Right. I was expecting them to be home around 8 p.m. They were not home until midnight. So I decided to make a rice and some basic soup. Right. It was my first time making rice or cooking. My father came. He thought that he had to make dinner and realized that the dinner was prepared. He ate the rice and soup and said, son, this is the best rice dinner meal I've ever had in my life. Oh, wow. Truth was, the rice was half cooked because it was my first time making, right? So I knew it was not the quality of the rice. It was rather, I think he was just happy to have a meal that his son made. Mm, mm. That was first and last meal that I've ever served. Came to the United States. I was busy with surviving on the street. I mean, there was so many things happened that I didn't have time to process. So I kind of forgot about my sister, my mother, father, and I was just trying to survive the day uh, up until I made to the United States. Mm-hmm. I came home from high school. I was a teenager, so the free lunch from school was never enough. My foster mom made chicken wings and some other side dishes. Mm-hmm. I was eating and then toward the end, I wanted to have one more piece of chicken wings. Quickly realized that there was not going to be enough if I had taken one. Right. So I was hesitating, should I take it or not? And then I looked down on my plate, there was a big chicken wing. And looked on my right or left, it was my foster father who gave me his portion. He uh-huh. didn't say a word. I mean, even if he told me, it would have been in, in English and I would not have understood. But he just looked at me and the message that I received was, kid, don't worry about it. Just have it. Oh my. And that night, one, I was very thankful for my foster father. <laughs> Two, it reminded me of my biological father who used to share his portion of food every year saying, you are a growing boy, you need to eat more. And I missed my father so badly. And I said, if he was alive, I knew I could make better rice, but that opportunity was gone. Mm, mm, mm. And I asked myself, what can I do? What can I do to honor my father? And I knew that my father always wanted me to be a better student. Right. And that's the night that I made the decision. I'm going to try my best to study hard mm-hmm. and go to college. Because before that, I never really had a dream of uh, going to college. Right. So how do I summarize this story? I think it's a story about love. Mm-hmm. And it's a story about how a small act of love can change 
someone's life. Oh, wow. That is my foster father who basically with that small, not to me, to me, that was a big act of love, but seemingly a small act of love had changed my life, mm. gave me a guidance, gave me a, a core, gave me a, a direction that I needed. Wow. You know, your story is powerful, but it is how you draw these lessons and these amazing jewels and nuggets out of it that is really, really valuable. I want to ask you about the work that you now do here in the U.S. You are part of the Bush Center, and there are things that are close to your heart that you now champion from there. Do you want to tell us about those? Yes, I'm very happy because I get to do things that I'm passionate about, which is helping North Korean refugees living in the United States. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to help North Koreans who live in the United States to find a better opportunity for themselves. And that requires education. But most often, North Korean refugees have uh, difficulties in finding enough uh, financial resources to go to school. And so that's why our program, my program focuses on providing scholarships for North Koreans in the United States so that they can pursue higher education in order to realize and maximize their potentials in their new in their new uh, home. Mm. And so that's one thing that I focus on doing. Again, Joseph, I know that you speak in many places. You are out there inspiring many people. My last question, because I know that we're out of time, is just your perspective on how you view freedom here in the U.S. as opposed to how you experienced it in you know, North Korea and then in China as well. What are your thoughts about that? And what are your thoughts about the way people here live with their freedom? In my opinion, I think freedom is one of the most precious things that needs to be protected, defended, and preserved. Preserved not only for us, but also people who are not yet free. Mm -hmm. And freedom, as many have said, it comes with a huge responsibility. And sometimes that can be challenging, but it's not whether should be, but it's, it's a must, a responsibility. For example, in 2013, I would like to describe myself as an accidental human rights activist. And let me explain to you what I mean by, it. like I said, I came to the United States. My goal was to go to a college. I thought that is one way to honor my father. I didn't know what I was going to study. Right. My goal was to go to college. I did not think about becoming human rights activist because I didn't know what they are or whether those occupations exist or not. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to share my story at TED. And my story with that was to support my argument that freedom is a great thing, but we have to approach it cautiously when it comes with responsibility. Because again, I think it's better off when we share it with others, mm-hmm. but the sharing comes with courage it comes with acknowledgement that we share this responsibility to share with others. Mm. 
I want to say thank you, but I know that that's not enough because you carry with you the burden of your own life that you have lived and your own experiences. And you have chosen to carry the burden of other people as well, you know, with you, which is something that I think many, many of us across the world must learn in order for us to create a more freer society. So thank you, because I have no other words of gratitude for what you do. Joseph, your work is inspiring. And my prayer is that you would have many more years to impact lives and many more years to teach people how to value what they have, the freedom they have, the opportunities that they have in free countries, in free nations, and free societies, because I think this is part of what you have represented here with us today. So, Joseph, thank you so much for being with me today on the front lines of freedom. Rosa, uh, thank you, Iban. Again, uh, you said you did not have a word to describe your gratitude, but I think without words, your sincerity was very well communicated, and that alone was more than enough. So, not have to worry about expressing your gratitude, your sincerity, greatness was very communicated and I appreciate it. You've been listening today to my conversation with Joseph Kim, a young man who escaped from North Korea where he had lived a very difficult life and embarked on a journey to save his own life, a journey that was to better himself but it's a journey that has become so much more than just about Joseph Kim. It's become about the peoples of our world. It's become about his people, the people he can find that no one sees, that no one knows, and how he can help with opportunities that he has found. And the big thing about Joseph is not wanting to take credit for it. It strikes me so much. And so as we finish this episode today, I want you to think about the things that you can do or things that you may even have already done for other people. And whether or not it's important that you get the credit for it. Because sometimes wanting to get the credit for the things that we do for other people gets in the way of the power and the impact of these things that we do for people. And Joseph exemplifies that today. I want to thank you for listening and being with us today and hope that we will... See you in the next episode. Please do share this episode with your friends and family. And as always, continue to believe and hope that some of the most incredible things are possible when somebody gives their life in service to others. Thanks again. Ivan Mawadide here. Bye-bye.